0: So, Jesus, uh, he's baptized in the Jordan River, and then the Spirit drives him out into the wilderness, and he's there for 40 days and 40 nights. And I seem to recall maybe the last time that this came up in the lectionary, which I guess would be roughly a year ago, um, I briefly mentioned that this is not a coincidence that Jesus is in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights when the people of Israel— wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. That's uh, just, that hopefully that's clear, that Jesus is uh, purposefully taking on the mantle of Israel. And where Israel, when they were tested and tried in the wilderness, kind of failed miserably and constantly, uh, Matthew, as he's telling the story of Jesus, is going to set up a story of success. And there's very much something to be said for that, where Jesus fail, or not where, not where Jesus fails, the opposite of that. Uh, where I have failed, Jesus succeeds. That's very, very important. We're not going to talk about that today, though. I want to focus in on those temptations. Um, I will say this, that New Testament scholars don't 100% know what to do with them. They're kind of weird. So we're going to talk through them for a minute, and hopefully you'll start to agree, yeah, these are weird. What's going on here? But as it turns out, the temptations of Jesus actually can tell us a lot about what temptation is for us. So they're extremely valuable for that reason. Um, The first one, Jesus has been fasting for 40 days, 40 nights, and now... There are some questions, mainly because I think there was some odd article in the news that my wife uh, sent to me um, that a, a pastor somewhere, I don't remember where, it wasn't in the U.S., he tried fasting for 40 days and he died. Um, <laughs> so, so first off, don't do that. Uh, the, uh, that raises other questions like, was it actually 40 days? I, look, I don't know. Um, I would say I want to take the Bible uh, seriously. So you oftentimes that means literally. Sometimes that doesn't. Um, if if Jesus, or if Matthew is saying Jesus was there for forty days and forty nights, we know why he's saying that. It's because Israel was wandering for forty years. Um, I don't know. I don't feel the need to explain it. Um, I think at the very least, it's clear Jesus was hungry um, because Matthew says he was hungry. And if he was fasting for a while, of course he's going to be hungry. It's actually one of the most useless verses in the entire Bible. It's a joke, but whatever. Um, So then, this Satan figure. Hasatan in Hebrew just means accuser of some kind. Um, But it's clear that he has some kind of... Subhuman personality, And he says to Jesus, who's apparently and obviously hungry, "If you 're the Son of God, turn these stones into bread. Now, apparently, in the wilderness, as you travel east from different parts of the Jordan River, there are there's like limestone and stuff like that that apparently looks like small pieces of bread. I'm just going to take their word for it um, But he says, turn these stones into bread, and apparently, something about that is sinful. Why? I seem to recall Jesus, when he's standing there with 5,000 men, let alone women and children, doing a lot of essentially that. why is it sinful now? Now, I'm going to have to let you down here and say it's not 100% clear, but, but we suspect that it has to do with the fact that it would mean Jesus using who he is for his own benefit. Apparently, that's the temptation. now, Set that off to the side because we'll, we're going to come back to it. Um, this the Satan, this uh, the this, the evil one, uh, takes Jesus to the top of the, the pinnacle of the of the temple in the holy city. Um, there's going to be some questions that come about that. Do they kind of whisk away in some sort of CGI effect that you'd see in a Marvel movie, or is this all happening internally? For my money, I don't care, but I suspect that it's happening internally. Why? Because that's where temptation happens. Now, occasionally there will be temptations of opportunity. Something, uh, an opportunity, something pops up, you know it's wrong, but it's right there in front of you, and you can't help but gravitate towards it, whatever it may be. It's not that thing's fault. The temptation has happened within your own heart and mind. So does that mean that as the devil is tempting Jesus, it's happening like within a vision? I kind of lean in that direction, Um, which tells us about temptation. It happens in here and in here. Don't blame other things and other people. So anyway, Jesus says, throw yourself, or Jesus, the devil, I need to stop getting that mixed up <laughs> before I commit wild Christological heresy and get defrocked. <laughs> the devil says to Jesus, throw yourself off because there's all kinds of promises within the Bible that God protects his Holy One. And Jesus says, you don't put... God to the test. Why is that a big deal? Well, first off, I mean, Jesus' relationship to God is extremely important, and it's very unique, and it's very powerful. But I wonder if Jesus knows, well, I don't wonder, I I suggest that Jesus knows That when he gets into real danger, the Father will not rescue him. As Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, the... the 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 pieces are already moving. One of his own has betrayed him. The temple guard are on their way. Jesus knows this. He knows the danger that he is in. And he has the wherewithal and the faithfulness to say, God or Father, please take me from this. Take this cup from me. But also your will be done. I think something is happening to that effect. And then finally, um, the devil takes Jesus, yes, got it right, to this high mountain. Now, again, this is kind of where I suspect a lot of this is happening internally. Um, to this high mountain where you can see all the kingdoms. Because there's no such mountain. Um And the devil says, these are all mine. If you bow down and worship me, I will give them to you. Uh, What a weird temptation. But it strikes at the heart of who Jesus really is. Now, Jesus dismisses this with the commandment, you will worship the Lord your God only. Only. Um, that's, that's like in the Big Ten commandments, so of course he's going to know that. But it, if Jesus is, in fact, the chosen one of God, God's own Son, and He's come to rescue God's people, or sorry, rescue humanity and bring them into the fold of God's people then there will come a time when all the nations belong to Him. That's all throughout the Bible. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. That's the end goal. That's where all of this, even 2,000 years later, is heading. So, the temptation here is, first off, to let's get this started now. But the temptation is also to violate who he is. And this gets to the heart of what we as followers of Jesus mean when we use the word God. When we say God, we technically do not mean some guy in the sky or a single uh, single being who is within himself, a single person, single personality who created the world. We believe that God is revealed, and he is revealed in, in, from the Bible, uh, as Father, Son and holy Spirit. Creator, redeemer, sustainer. And the weird thing about this image of God that the Bible paints is that each member of what we call the Trinity actually exists to support the others. God in God's self is perfect community in and of God's self. God needs nothing. Here's how this works. The Father, Creator, sends the Son who is the Redeemer, who seeks to glorify the Son. This happened when Jesus was baptized. By the way, God, God revels in His love for the Son. And yet the Son comes to redeem and then send the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes to reveal the Son, who seeks to glorify the Father. Now, if you're feeling a little dizzy, that's okay. The Trinity will do that to you. But for the enemy, the Satan, the accuser, to say worship me is to say whatever you have going on with the Father and the Spirit, which of course he knows, it's not enough. You can do better. When in reality, you by definition cannot do better that is the best. Now, what does this say about the nature of temptation? Because temptation is not a word that we, in, within our culture outside of the church, use very often. And when we do use it, we don't use it terribly seriously. We might use the word temptation in relation to cheesecake. I will fail that temptation almost every time. Although, the other day, I resisted. We were at Costco. My wife said, do you want cheesecake? Do you need cheesecake? And I go, no. So, come on. I'm holy. Um, Not even a little. So, we, we we don't use temptation in a very deep way and 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 as a result we lose track of what temptation really is. And if we learn anything about the temptations of Jesus, which have to be real temptations, they have to be real concerns, otherwise it's just a it's a, it's all an act. And I don't get the impression from Jesus that anything is an act. That first off, the temptation was for Jesus to use his power, who who he is, his ability for his own his, his own gain. The second was to essentially I think violate the mission that God had given him. And the third, the temptation ultimately was to violate. Who he is at his inner core, as the one who glorifies the Father and the one who sends the Spirit. In other words, temptation, real temptation, the scary kind, speaks to the best parts of us, it speaks to who we are at our best. If somebody has been gifted with a lot of authority, the temptation is always going to be to abuse that authority. If somebody has been uh, gifted with loads of money, the temptation will always be to use that to their advantage as opposed to using it in generosity. Generosity. If, some, if, you are, um, if the best part of you is extremely compassionate, which is truly a, a good character trait, we need a lot of that, then the temptation will be for you to become a doormat. If you have been gifted with immense strength, with immense intelligence, your, your temptation will be to use that for your own advantage as opposed to coming to the aid of others. In other words, the things that really tempt you are the things that speak to something that's actually deeply good about you. And that makes it really scary. Scary. That's the kind of temptation that isn't like, oh yeah, I stole that candy bar and I shouldn't have. That's the kind of temptation that ruins lives. That's the kind of temptation that when the enemy, and I do believe in the existence of the enemy, will come around and and will just start speaking to that part of our heart that we thought was the best. Because if he can corrupt that, if he can twist that, if he can change that, if he can Just alter it a little bit. Then he can send that train off the rails. As a pastor now for over a decade, I've seen it so many times. I have, as a human being, for nearly 40 years, (laughs) um, I've seen that in my own self. And so when we get to this point of talking about temptation, and, and I ask you to seriously reflect on, first off, what's the best in you? And how can that be corrupted? Where's the temptation there? More likely than not, memories of failure are going to flood. Ways that you've dropped the ball, ways that I have dropped the ball as I'm talking through this. There's a lot for all of us. But that's why we start with Jesus going into the wilderness and fasting for 40 days. Because he's taking on the mantle of Israel. He's he's reenacting the story of his people. Which is a story of failure over and over again. And if we want to think really hard and really honestly about our lives and about the ways that we interact with each other, the ways we treat ourselves, the way that we look at our communities and, and the needs of our communities, they, they honestly are, there's a lot of failure there. And yet with Jesus as he takes on those stories, his becomes a story of victory. That's why I find it so helpful to, to imagine that this moment where Jesus is on the pinnacle of the temple and the devil is saying, throw yourself down because and, and, um, you'll be safe. Jesus knowing that there's going to come a time when he can't rely on that. When he is at his most vulnerable is when he will not be protected. And that's the point. Because if Jesus is willing to make himself vulnerable... And to have that vulnerability um, reach out and grasp his own mortality. So that by his life and by his story, he can then launch a new story, a story of victory. Then he's willing to do that even for us. And so when we talk about temptation, I imagine, and to some extent, hopefully, I mean, it's not good to dwell on the ways that we have failed. It's not always good to d- dwell on the ways that we are tempted because then that, can, that turns into entertaining those temptations in a weird, twisted way. But hopefully some of that's come up. Hopefully the, I, and I would trust the Holy Spirit to reveal that to you. But Martin Luther, um, who, who wrote extensively about his struggle with his own sin and his own failures and temptations, legendarily said that that struggle makes the best theologians. Because when the accuser comes, not only just to tempt you, but to remind you of your failures. Um, I would do a survey, but I'm not going to because we would all raise our hands if we're being honest. How many of us dwell and get stuck on our own failures? Um, it's all of us. That when the devil comes and reminds us of the ways, not only that we are tempted, but by the ways that we have, been, we have given in to that temptation, in other words, the tempter gets us to fail and then gets us to dwell on that failure. You know, you know what you do with that, with that? You just agree with him. When the devil comes and lays your sins out before you, you say, yes, I did do that. I am guilty. And I know one who gave himself for me so that that guilt has been removed from my heart and I am no longer condemned because the condemnation fell on his shoulders, not mine. Amen. As you are able, I invite you to rise.